Well, good evening, everyone. I'm so glad to see you back here tonight, and uh, welcome to Bethel. You know, it's been several weeks since, a few weeks since we all met together. I'm glad you're here. I have missed you. And uh, uh, some of y'all are here tonight for uh, a first time back, actually, and, uh, and you're enduring the mask and coming to worship, and <laughs> I get it. And thank you for being here. Thank you for coming and, and investing in being here tonight. I want us to look tonight to God's Word. You know the most important thing is I know the one that is here tonight, and that's the Lord Himself. And He has a word for all of us. Amen? And so uh, tonight, that wasn't a very strong amen. amen. Amen? You can even give a muffled amen, all right? So the Lord is among us, and He has a word for us tonight. We're starting a brand new series of messages. I'm titled this called Foundations. And because, listen, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do, right? And so where, where will they go? And so the foundations are so important. In, in Psalm 11, I, I, we're going to look at a bunch of different scripture verses, but, but here, here's the thing. If the foundations are destroyed, the scripture says, what can the righteous do? It's important that we have a right foundation in our life, morally, theologically, ethically. We need to have a right foundation in our life. If that foundation is destroyed, then we are on sifting sand. We are blown around by every wind of doctrine. We are confused. We listen to the message of the world and we think, well, that must be truth. But if we're anchored to something greater, that is something firmer, that's something that's true, then it will become a guidepost for us and a strength to weather the, 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 the wrong messages of this fallen culture. I think, I know that we desperately need revival in our hearts. I need it. I have never felt in my life more tension, more stress, more anxiety than I feel today. Battles with depression and discouragement in my life listening to the winds of, that are blowing on the media and the windbags and the windy, uh, people just spouting all kinds of ideas and truths and falsehoods, and people embracing those and believing them. And I'm greatly concerned about where we're going as a culture. We kind of get back to the foundations, and today I want us to look at the foundations of the Ten Commandments, which are fundamental to us. If you have your Bible, look with me to Deuteronomy chapter, Deuteronomy chapter number 5 is where we're at this evening. And two, two passages we're going to go back and forth in is Deuteronomy 5 and then Exodus 19 and 20. And so uh, uh, look with me to Deuteronomy chapter number 5. Then Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, and I understand the context of this. 
It is right after the exodus coming out of Egypt. And God is going to meet with the children of Israel and reveal himself to them in a very personal way and powerful way and give them truth to anchor their lives. In chapter number 5, verse 1, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I'm speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them, listen, and observe them, obey them carefully. It's not just the knowing of the word, it's the doing of the word in your life. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make his covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those with all those of us alive here today, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. You were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain, he said. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture today, I I, I want us to think about these Ten Commandments. He says, first of all, these Ten Laws, these Ten Commandments, the Decalogue it's called, the Ten Commandments. It's spoken to us as believers. It's spoken to us as a people. It's given to the children of Israel, reminded here in Deuteronomy before they enter into the promised land that they forget not who God is and what he's revealed to them. All hell is aimed at our society. It's aimed at marriage. It's aimed at morality. It's aimed at family. It's aimed at home. It's, it, it's aimed at the very existence about who we are as male and female, about justice and righteousness and faithfulness and the knowledge of God and the worship of God and the liberties that we have. They're all under attack by all of hell. Our speech will be under attack. Persecution, I believe, was coming, and we need to prepare ourselves. We live in a litigious society. We live in a society that has, is not anchored to the truth. It's marked by hedonism, humanism, relativism, and materialism. There's, there's a mass confusion about who we are and who God is. And it begins with him. The weapon of our warfare is the truth. It's the fixed standard for what is right and wrong, and it's unchanging. And these are encapsulated in these ten words that he gave us on two tablets written by the very finger of God. I know it's quiet in here. I want you to listen. We're at a place that's so important. And decisions we make have eternal ramifications. There was an old country salesman out in the middle of nowhere one day, got lost, didn't know where he was going. There was a fork in the road, and he rolled down his window, and he... He said to the old farmers there beside the road, he said, does it matter which one of these roads I take? 
He said, not to me, it doesn't. <laughs> but it might matter to you. Where are you wanting to go? The decisions you make has a huge impact of where you end up. The very fabric of our culture seems to be tattered and torn. We have technology and ability to communicate around the world at a moment's instant speed and access, yet we communicate less and less with one another. We distrust one another. Perversion and hate and immorality is rampant. We have technology and strength militarily, yet we are morally weak. We have much learning and writing and publishing in books and studies, but we're morally confused about the most basic issues. We've lost our identity. We have no moral compass. And we have no code that's anchored to truth. We've lost the sense of who we are. We're clueless about who God is, and we're disoriented about how we should live. What is morally right? What is morally wrong or evil? What does God desire of his people? How can I know him? If he exists, how can I know him? And how can I relate rightly to him? And the second question is, how can I relate rightly to my fellow man? And this is what the Ten Commandments deals with. The moral foundation has been removed. And each man does what seemingly is right in his own eyes. You see, all of the Bible addresses this. Theology is the study of who God is. Who is God and how do I rightly relate to him? And ethics is how do I live rightly under God in the life I live with other people. And theology and ethics must be wed or there's no truth. So how do I live right? How do I be right? How do I relate rightly? The Ten Commandments are the greatest, single, most important code ever written. It addresses God's relation, man's relationship to God and man's relationship with one another. It is a precious possession. It is discounted by many. It is resisted and rejected by the most rebellious in us. But quite honestly, the Western Church, the Roman Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Jews, Christians, Evangelicals, Reformed, we understood the value of these ten words. They can't save us, but they were given to us for an important reason. We're going to uncover that in the next several Sundays. Amen? Amen. I know I'm running behind. Stay with me. I always start adding stuff that's not in the notes. 
In the 1940s, a book was written by a man named Elton Trueblood, and he called it Foundations for Reconstruction. In that book, as I'm rereading an old copy that was my dad's, I, I, it just speaks to the contemporary scene. Trueblood said, when we speak of the importance of the commandments in contemporary life, we do not mean by this that the commandments are generally obeyed. Listen, on the contrary, all of them are disobeyed, sometimes flagrantly. What we mean instead is that the Decalogue serves in a remarkable way as a standard of moral reference. There's one thing worse than failure to reach an accepted standard, and that's not to have a standard to miss. The commandments as we know them are not a description of what we do, but rather an affirmation of what we recognize that we ought to do. It's absurdly cynical to deny the tremendous value of a recognized standard, even when we fail to live up to it. The acceptance of a goal at least ensures that there are many who try, and they in any case know that when they have failed, which they would not know, if the moral law were not accepted. Our standard is a most precious possession. He says, only the most superficial optimist can fail to see that our civilization is in a serious danger. We can go down as preceding civilizations have gone down, and there are some ways in which we're going down now. Scholars with some knowledge of history, point today to alarming similarities between our situation and that of imperial Rome in her days of apparent strength, yet real decay. And when this is pointed out, voices are usually raised in protest saying that prediction of decline has long been expressed and that consequently the prediction may be dismissed. But it's hard, however, to see how the tragic that the, how the logic of this protest can be sustained in view of the fact that the predicted decline has often come to pass. He goes on to say that, after all, Socrates was unfortunately correct in the estimate of the inherent weaknesses of Athenian life. Sodom and Gomorrah could have been saved, we are told, if the redemptive element in them had reached a certain minimum strength. But the sad truth that we sometimes neglect is that the minimum was never reached, with the consequence that the notorious cities were destroyed. The fact is that life tends to go down after the great burst of vitality, and that it's reasonably sure to go down unless men combine their efforts in certain way to counteract decay. What Trudeau is saying is at least there needs to be some understanding of morality and ethics in every society, or it will come apart and be decayed. Tonight, I want us to first of all notice the relational context of the giving of the law. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2, he says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The use of the word Horeb in chapter 5, verse 2, 
is, is also, uh, sometimes the word is used, Sinai. It's the same mountain, Horeb and Sinai. He said he made a covenant with us. In chapter 5, verse 3, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with those of us alive here today. Moses said, God's in a personal relationship with us. And this is how God has shown that personal relationship. He's made a covenant with us. In the book of Exodus, chapter number 19, is another account of the giving of the law. In Exodus chapter 19, beginning with verse number 1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and as they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. A personal relationship. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, my people, among all the peoples of all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people. And he set before them the words that the Lord has commanded him. And the people answered together and says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Wow. You see here in this context, it was a personal relationship, a personal context. First of all, God reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself to the children of Israel. He comes to them. He is showing himself to them. He comes in a thick pillar, a thick of fire, and a thick cloud over the mountain. And there's God's voice speaking. Wouldn't that do something to you? All right, and you hear the voice of the Lord saying, this is how you'll live. And there was fear and trembling and a holiness of God. Understand, some people say, well, why obey the Ten Commandments? It's just in a book. No, it's not just in a book. The, the God in his sovereignty, God in his holiness, and God who created this world speaks to man he made on how to live. And he's to be obeyed and listened to. Not only revelation, but redemption. He said, I have a relationship with you. Not only did I reveal myself to you, but secondly, I redeemed you. I've caused you to be born as a nation. Yes, I made promises to Abraham. I made it to Isaac. I made it to Jacob. I made it to Joseph. And you were in the, 
Egypt for 400 years, but I never forgot about you. And I never forgot about that covenant promise. And when you were in slavery, I heard your cry and I remembered my covenant with your fathers. And I heard you and I rescued you and I saved you and I passed over and your sons and your firstborn were spared while the wrath was poured out on Egypt. And I brought you with my mighty hand and the blood of the Passover lamb through the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army, and I caused a nation to be born, my people. Wow. And he said, I chose you to be my elected people for my purposes. And I'm telling you what, we've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He heard us, he saw us, he chose us, and he redeemed us with his own son. They made a covenant agreement with him. And he says, this is what you'll do and you will obey my words. And the people said, yes, we will do it. And they recognized the holiness of God and the authority of God and the redemption of God in their life. And there was a sense of awe that the people of God were walking with him. I tell you, there's something that just is missing in the evangelical world today. And that's a sense of reverential awe that we are walking in the presence of God who is holy. Not only that, I want you to look at this law, and this is supposed to be an overview. I'm trying not to dig down too deep. We are to keep this law. We are to obey it. And what is is the content of it? Let's look at it together. Chapter 5, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verse number 7. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 7 You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number one, no other God beside me, only me. Second one is you don't fashion any idols. Don't make images of other creatures and treat them like God. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now we'll dig down. What does this mean? Pastor, well, you got to come next week. (laughs) But let me give you a clue. It's not just cussing. Notice the next one. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What does that mean, Pastor? He goes a long time, verses 12 to 15 on that. You've got to come back 
two or three weeks in a row to hear that. And then in the next one, it's right in the middle, and it really bridges both sides of the Decalogue. It's super important. It says, obey, honor your parents. Wow. Your father and your what? Mother. As the Lord your God has commanded you. And notice then, how do I relate with each other? Boy, do we need this in our day. You shall not murder. Well, pa- Pastor, what does he mean by murder? Oh, I think Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount addresses this. We'll talk about that in about sermon number seven, okay? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Jesus said the law could be summarized like this. The first half of the Decalogue is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half is love your neighbors yourself. The interesting thing that Jesus said, though, he took the Decalogue where it says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And Jesus turns it around and says, thou shalt. We focus on thou shalt not, but he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. The third thing I want us to look at tonight is the importance of the law. You say, Brother Tim, I think the law's passed away. It's not really important anymore now that Jesus has come. And Jesus really did away with the law and that the law is not important anymore. And that kind of baloney is taught in some places. But listen to the words of Jesus. I think he would be the authority of this, right? And so in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse number 17, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Now listen. Truly, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's accomplished its purpose. For whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to this. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. You see, Jesus didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. We're going to talk about that and what that means, but you've got to come to those other sermons, all right? He said, listen to me. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law is good. So the value and the importance of the law, we're going to discuss it. It's so important. The next thing I want us to look at is what is the problem of the law? I'm glad you asked. What is the problem with the law? Well, the problem isn't the law. The problem is something that dwells in us that Paul identifies. And you know what the problem is? Sin. 
And rebellion and sin lives deep in your heart. And so when the law is given, your natural inclination is to rebel against it. During Christmas, we got to see some of our grandchildren. Praise Jesus. It had been a long time. Our daughter Valerie had a little baby boy, so we drove to Michigan where they live now. And so we got to see the two boys. And they are just awesome. Just awesome. Ezra and Isaac. That's pretty good Old Testament names, aren't they? And the new baby's named Jonah. So there you go. I was holding out for Nehemiah, but they said Jonah. And Isaac, I just love that boy. I, 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 he just has a special place in my heart. Grandparents, you know what I'm talking about. He just has a special place in my heart. And big brother knows it all, talks about everything, and he always wants to be in charge. But little Isaac is just like, I'll do what I want to do. And uh, he's, he's, he's tough, and he can be a little bit sneaky mean, too. And I noticed in him something, and it's rebellion against when you tell him to do something, he, he's trying to decide whether or not I value your opinion about what I should do or not do. <laughs> and that rebellion is in his little heart. You see, I think that's passed on from generation to generation. I'd like to say it came on Christie's side of the family, but I know it was uh, on mine as well. And Justin's. Because sin is in us. And that rebellion is nothing that it's to be winked at. And the book of Romans, chapter number two, this is the problem. This is the problem that the law exposes. It exposes the problem deep, dark in our heart that needs to be dealt with. And in the 12th verse of Romans 2, Paul said, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's he saying is Jews and Gentiles both have an understanding of law. And they're both condemned because of sin. Now listen to what he says about Gentiles. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Ten Commandments, do instinctively the things of the law, which like murder, they know that that's wrong. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. They have a conscience and their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively alternately accusing them or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He goes on to say to the Jews, you have the law and you condemn other things, but you approve what they're doing yourselves. He goes on to say, he says, you who therefore teach another that do you teach not teach yourself? You preach to another that you should not steal, but do you steal? You preach to others, don't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery, Jews? Yes, because sin is the culprit in you. This is the problem. We have all sinned. 
Paul says it clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin and all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, none. Here's the deal. This is the problem with the law. The law condemns us, but the law can't redeem us. There's no saving grace in the law. That's the problem with legalism, folks. It's void of grace. So what is the provision? What is the provision made for us that are under the law and we are lawbreakers because we are sinful? You know his name. And Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us and why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Hallelujah. And the perfect man fulfilled the perfect law. And died the perfect sacrifice for sinful men and women. That we might be made right with a holy God. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. Galatians chapter number 4, verse number 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, listen, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Then he goes on to say, you're no longer a slave, but a son. That's the provision God made under the law. Isn't that good news? Oh, my goodness. The book of Romans, chapter number 8, verse 3. Romans, chapter 8, verse 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's verse 2, verse 3. For what the law could not do, listen, the law could not do, weak as it is through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Where? In us. Ha! Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's a miracle. He fulfilled the law in you by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.
I'll take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But before we do, I want to remind you that the law is good and we need to study it. But the law will always bring us to the gospel because that's where hope's found. Amen? It's an old hymn that we used to sing and it was written in the 1800s by a man named James Nicholson. I just want you to listen to the words. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to ransom my soul. Break down every idol. Cast out every foe. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, for this moment I humbly entreat. I wait, blessed Savior, at thy crucified feet. By faith for my cleansing, I see thy blood flow. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thou knowest I patiently wait, come now, and within me a new heart create. To those who have sought thee, thou never said no. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow? Yes, whiter than snow. Lord, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. There's only one that can cleanse you from your sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Above in heaven, have your way in our hearts and our lives. We need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. We run to you now, and we confess that we are breakers of the law. We are sinners, Condemned, unclean. But Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and satisfied it completely and died the perfect sacrifice so that we might be made right with you. Oh, Father, help us turn from sin and turn to Jesus tonight. In his name we pray. Amen.